The Going Viral podcast from Health Ed shares the latest information on COVID-19 from authoritative voices and leading experts. You can find all episodes at healthed.com.au or if you're a registered health professional, you can listen on the Health Ed app as well as access many educational resources to support your professional development and practice. Hello and welcome to Health Ed's Going Viral. I am David Lim. It is Thursday, the 11th of November. Professor Nigel Crawford presents a COVID-19 update and covers booster shots, myocarditis from mRNA vaccines, childhood COVID vaccinations, delivery methods, and issues relating to the opening of borders. All right, hello everyone. My name's um, Nigel Crawford, and I'm um, backing another COVID nineteen vaccine update. Always something happening in the in the vaccine world, so um, it's a great opportunity to update on some of the information uh, that that's coming to hand, and, and lots of um, things happening as, as mentioned. So, as always, start off with the declarations of interest. So, I am the director of safety, the Victorian Vaccine Safety Service, uh, and also currently a senior medical advisor to Victorian Department of Health in their vaccine safety team, as well as the chair um, of ATAGI. And the presentation presents my own views, not necessarily those of my affiliations. I have no industry uh, declarations to make. So the topics I wanted to go through today include the additional doses of COVID vaccines. Important to understand the difference of what we talk about, the third and the, the booster dose. And actually the, the booster dose officially starting on the 8th of November, those that are six months post completing their two dose, uh, what's called the primary course, are able to, to get that third dose, um, additional dose, which we're calling a booster for them. Also touch base on the myocarditis following the mRNA vaccines, the five to 11 year olds, very topical around that school age vaccination and some information that's come out um, in the last week or so around the Pfizer vaccine in that age group. A little bit of a touch base on some novel delivery methods, which are really important as we get to that pointy end of the, the program, and also opening the borders, travel, particularly on the eastern seaboard, starting up both within states, but then also international. So a few other things to think about there, not just um, COVID-19 vaccine, which is important. But before jumping into the additional doses, I thought just pause briefly to reflect and say, you know, how fantastic that the coverage is um, now around Australia. See, I'm based in Victoria, so I pulled out uh, the Victorian data and they do have a really interactive website. You can see the link there. We can see the, the coverage and information and, you know, essentially um, this time last year, November 2020, we'd obviously just come out of uh, lockdown in, in Victoria and elsewhere, but no vaccine yet quite in sight, even though we knew that they were coming. Obviously now again towards the end of the year, we're getting over 80% for all of those eligible cohorts. And while we're capturing coverage in lots of data, and those that are 16 plus, even the 12 to 15 year olds you can see in that graph are um, in the orange bar, the bottom one, already over 83% here in Victoria, only starting in mid-September. So that kind of steep uptake and coverage at a really high level is, is fantastic. And it's obviously not just uh, the first dose, it's also that second dose. And again, over 55% of um, those 12 to 15 year olds have already had that second dose. So again, hopefully moving into a summer where we're gonna have really high vaccine coverage, clearly there are still disease cases and impact on the hospital, but we're getting to a level, not just 80%, but 90, 95% where we can start to open up because of that vaccine you know, protection. And fantastic that we have multiple vaccines available that we're using in different parts of the, the program and really got us to this level where we hope to get to a, a COVID normal. So talking about those additional or third doses, the terminology is a little bit confusing. So this is the link here to the Atagi statement on that. And this was the first thing that came out in early October. And this is essentially part of your primary schedule. So we know those that have had two doses of a uh, vaccine majority will be really well protected. And that protection is holding out for both severe uh, infection, including hospitalisation, 
and ICU. But there are people in the community who are immunocompromised for a lot of range of uh, different reasons who just don't get as good a response to those two doses of vaccine. So those could be transplants, those might have had a liver or a lung or a heart transplant, need to go on immune suppression. So often quite long standing high doses of medication to dampen down that immune response so they can obviously that organ doesn't get rejected as an example. So and those also that have um, underlying cancer or hematological or blood malignancies also at much higher risk and both the treatment that they have and the underlying disease can make them um, at higher risk. So to optimise their protection because of that immune suppression there's a recommendation to give them a third dose and that third dose is a minimum of two months after their primary uh, schedule, the dose one and two, which could have been any of the three vaccine. It could have been AstraZeneca, Moderna or Pfizer. All of those in those immunocompromised groups, which is around 500,000 Australians need that third dose. And that can either be a full dose of either of the mRNA vaccines, the Moderna or Pfizer. So that's just flagging that group and we will need to optimise their protection as we go into the um, you know, last quarter of, of this year. The next recommendation, which as I mentioned is just officially sort of launching the program, is that of the uh, what we're calling a booster dose. So again is, is a third dose but this is actually trying to optimise the protection in your immune memory longer term. Obviously lots of different debates around what the best timing of this would be. As mentioned you've definitely got great protection with those two doses uh, early on but this uh, now an additional dose um, six months after, so again not the two months of the, of the immunocompromised, but six months later will obviously boost up that immune response and ideally protect you for longer um, period of time afterwards and again how long and you know duration is, is uncertain but we are seeing from countries like Israel and the United States which have started rolling out these booster doses we aim to see that they get long-term protection both from hospitalization but also transmission so you're trying to minimize the transmission um, of the virus in the community. So the vaccine for this though is, is currently just the Pfizer vaccine is being used for the booster. The Moderna dose booster is under review and, and for the United States they've reviewed a half dose, so a different dose requirement for the Moderna vaccine which does have an eye antigen. So this program is, is currently just um, Pfizer and it is targeting, as I'll show on the next slide from the Atagi advice, the people essentially who initially were what 1A and 1B. So those categorisation or priority which got quite confusing have been taken away. It's just focusing on the time post your two doses which will vary depending on the primary course of what you had. Again doesn't matter what vaccine you had as part of those first two doses. Pfizer currently is a recommendation for the third dose. That's around 1.7 um, million Australians this year but going up to you know um, three and a half, nearly four million people in January of next year. So really sort of big numbers as we transition into next year. See ongoing review of those requirements and how well those vaccines are working, but it's essentially it's that six month time point which will trigger that uh, request for you to present. And, and my recommendation would be when it's your turn to be called up, you should, you should go and get that booster and you should get the vaccine that's available at that time for that reason. So really important to, to listen to your health professional about which vaccine uh, is required. Lots of requests at the moment to wait for other vaccines such as Novavax which is coming. Great, there is another vaccine in the pipeline which is made from a different platform. Um, it's been shown in the phase three trials to be very effective but not yet part of any booster or program. Still going those regulatory processes. So don't wait for Novavax, you need to get the vaccine that's available now. So now going to myocarditis which I'll go through a few more slides in a bit more detail. This is an important adverse event of special interest which I have touched on in previous presentations. Um, it's important to think about the 
you know, risk benefit clearly, but I'm just going to give some more data in terms of uh, who's at risk and, and what we need to do to manage that. So this is an adverse event of special interest. You can get myocarditis or inflammation of the heart following the infection, um, and that can also be the lining the heart or pericarditis. But focusing on the myocarditis, which is the more serious end of the spectrum, it was picked up initially in Israel and has been confirmed in, in other countries, including in Canada, United States and, and Scandinavia, and it's with the mRNA vaccine. So initially with Pfizer, which is Israel's been running with, but also with Moderna. And there's been some additional information come out from the Vaccine Safety Data Link, which is an active surveillance system, which I'll talk to in more detail. So the time that this can occur, the myocarditis is around one to seven days, but maximum sort of around two to three days post the vaccine, so pretty early on. Its main risk factors appear to be in males, 12 to 24 years of age, with a peak that's sort of 16 to 18 years, which is the same as myocarditis itself from other causes. There seems to be this peak in, in males in, in late uh, adolescent young adulthood, uh, less common in the younger age groups. Hence that background rate of, of myocarditis of all causes is something that we need to monitor. And there haven't been any clear risk factors in terms of background. So no increase that we've seen today in First Nation people or those with underlying congenital heart disease, which you recall was initially a precaution that has been taken away. So essentially, it seems to be there's no clear risk factor of who could identify apart from age uh, and gender, as I mentioned above. Lots of investigations going on to understand this a bit better, but exactly the driver is, is still um, a little bit uncertain, but it is definitely a dose two, uh, predominantly dose two phenomenon. So there have been lots of presentations around this, and again, I think I've mentioned that the um, ACIP, which is the ATAGI equivalent in the United States, has open meetings which have all their slides available. So this is a link to their meeting from the 2nd and 3rd of, um, of November, uh, where they presented literally looking at the 5 to 11 year olds, but importantly included an update on the safety. So I'm just going through a few slides here from Matthew Oster, who's a cardiologist from Emory in Atlanta and presented uh, on the meeting and gave some helpful background to, to the myocarditis and, and their investigations to date. So the way that they have described this is a paper that, again, Matthew Oster was a senior author on, but just looking at this spectrum. So there's sort of what's called the classic myocarditis or pre-COVID. Um, there's COVID-related diseases, I mentioned, can definitely cause myocarditis uh, at a rate that's been shown in Israel and elsewhere to be higher than the risk associated with the vaccine. There's something called MIS-C or PIMS-TS here in Australia, which is a multi-system inflammatory syndrome in C being in childhood, where they can get a myocarditis. Again, most common in the... Uh, Pre, uh, sort of primary school age group, so sort of five to 12 years of age. And this is something, a delayed response post the vaccine, similar to something like Kawasaki's disease. So we won't spend too much time on, on MIS-C, but it is an important cause of issues of the heart related to COVID uh, infection or post-infection. And then the COVID-related myocarditis, which is sort of overlapping all of those, but it is on the milder end of the spectrum. And this slide here again just shows that milder end of the spectrum in terms of those that have um, underlying dysfunction of their heart when they first get picked up with the myocarditis. So again, relatively small numbers. The green is, is the um, vaccine related. And you can show that majority, even if they had mild changes on their echocardiogram or heart ultrasound at the time, recovered very quickly, where those that were the classic myocarditis often at baseline would have an abnormal heart function which persisted. And that's um, days after, as you can see, that they still got persistent changes in around 25% um, up to a month post um, the heart inflammation. And those that had MIS-C, again, majority recover, uh, seem to have a stunned heart and then do recover, but uh, not always completely. So it does appear that the vaccine associated is, is on the milder spectrum, but definitely longer term follow-up is, is really required. They have ongoing follow-up again of these cases, which is important. So the rate you know, at, at the peak is around one in 10 to 15,000. So again, this is a rare 
adverse event of special interest, that's one in 10,000 to 15,000 vaccines, may have this um, heart uh, inflammation, particularly in the younger males, with that higher rate, as I've mentioned. They've followed up over now nearly 900 cases. Majority had been discharged, and while a couple had been needing to go to ICU, majority hadn't. There had been some abnormal MRIs, which is a, a test done uh, to look at the heart in more detail. Again, some of those changes weren't shown in the function of the heart, but there is obviously ongoing follow-up to understand what these MRI changes mean uh, in that medium to longer term. And this is again just confirming that recovery. So certainly the key I think take home here is that when they've been seen by their cardiologist or their health professional paediatrician um, or physician uh, in that um, 90 days post the vaccine, this is for 50 patients, so again, small numbers, but need to follow up. Around 90% of those are felt to be fully or probably fully recovered, just waiting on a few tests. So it does appear to be that the majority of people are really in hospital for maximum a day or so and, and completely recovering, which is, which is really important. So the next thing to confirm is that um, the ATAGI uh, is still meeting weekly to discuss uh, vaccine safety and coming out with a weekly statement. Uh, the latest one, you can see the, the link to the document there and I've just taken out some of the key points. This is really looking at some of that international data that is showing that there does appear to be a higher rate between the mRNA vaccines in terms of Moderna and Pfizer. This has come from international um, studies, including um, some work from the Vaccine Safety Data Link in the United States. I've shown you some of those slides uh, also from Canada and also from Scandinavia. So this kind of um, signals being investigated in more detail. The risk though is, is low and both conditions obviously still rare. So in terms of the excess risk, it's less than two cases per 100,000 second dose vaccine recipients. Again, in that youngest target age group of, of males, um, 18 to 24 years of age. And there's no evidence of a difference in severity of disease between the vaccine brands. So again, clearly something needs to be closely watched and monitored and there's ongoing review here in Australia given we are using both vaccines in that um, 12 and over program, some obviously in the vaccine hubs and a and, and, and mixture of the different vaccines being used. But we need to be uh, alert to this and obviously getting particularly young people to present if they do have any, any chest pain or other symptoms post the, the vaccines. So in terms of that presentation, we have put together some guidance uh, in collaboration with our primary care colleagues. You can see here all the names of different people that have contributed to this um, group or their societies. So the Cardiac Society of um, Australia and New Zealand, the Royal Australian College of GPs, Australian College of Remote and Rural Medicine, and also the Australian College of Emergency, and has really a flow of what to do if someone does have chest pain, shortness of breath, breath um, post the mRNA vaccine, particularly in those couple of days post the second dose. Uh, presentation to their GP if the symptoms are ongoing and or there's any abnormal um, changes seen in their ECG or baseline bloods then to the emergency department and also then follow up of what to do with subsequent doses and I'll just show the the flow diagram which is in there again won't go through every component but um, you clearly want to have completely recovered uh, from that first episode if you've had myocarditis or pericarditis you want to have completely recovered. Myocarditis needs to really see the cardiologist and the specialist because that's, as I mentioned before, the pointy end of the spectrum. The pericarditis can sometimes be hard to tease out. Generally, if they've had completely normal investigation, so a normal ECG or a normal um, blood test of their troponin, it's okay to proceed with the vaccination. You can see the link there. If they've not had any investigations done or it's uncertain, there'd be a, a lower level of certainty, but generally felt that they're okay to proceed with that second dose um, administration, discussing obviously the risk benefit. So this divides up by age, obviously highlighting in red that higher risk um, male, as mentioned, between 12 to 24 years of age. So hopefully this sort of flow diagram will help 
that decision making for subsequent um, doses. And it may become a question obviously for third doses uh, as we move into that booster program uh, in coming months. So in terms of risk benefit, again, just trying to balance out this risk of the myocarditis, again, acknowledging Alan Cheng for this um, slide, which I've just modified a little bit as more information's come to hand, but obviously the benefits of the risk against both the infection and COVID myocarditis and long COVID, uh, protection against that severe disease and death. There's obviously cocooning, so particularly for the young adults, it's about trying to stop um, transmission within their family and, and elderly within their family or immunosuppressed who are clearly at higher risk. There's that community protection and then the benefits obviously are greater um, as people do get older, but there still is, is benefit in those younger age groups. The risk of myocarditis remains very rare. As mentioned, it's in that range between one in five, maybe one in six per, per 100,000. And it has been a mild spectrum to date. So while we'd prefer to not have any myocarditis, we are very closely monitoring it. And while the long-term effects are unknown, it's reassuring that those baseline tests are coming back to normal pretty quickly and there is ongoing monitoring in place. And sharing information will always occur as it comes to hand. So now just moving into the 5 to 11 year olds and that myocarditis discussion is really important because obviously we need to know is there potential risk in this primary school age group. So I'll just go through some of the slides again. As I mentioned this November meeting of ACIP very publicly has the, the presentation from Pfizer in this age group as well as some of the safety concerns and the risk benefits um, discussion which I think are, are helpful if you would like to see more details. But just taking a couple of snapshots from the slides of the presentation. So as mentioned this is a different uh, formulation. The younger age groups, as we know from in terms of infection, it's generally uh, a milder illness. They seem to be much um, more able to clear the infection quickly. These younger age groups less likely to get severe uh, hospitalizations and, and ICU, even though it does occur. So therefore, when they looked at the different trial levels, they showed they actually need a lower dose. And they've got a third of the adult dose, so it's 10 micrograms rather than the 30 in adults. And they did show that this same schedule of three weeks apart in this age group did produce a really robust immune response with an equivalent bridging level to the adults between 16 and 25, and also did um, impact on uh, some disease. There was a very small number of cases, but it did show some impact of disease with over 3,200 people uh, included in the, in the trials to date. It will have a different formulation, as I mentioned, with a different cap. So the adults will be the purple cap of the 30 micrograms and the paediatric one orange. And there will also be lots of education and training about how we can streamline and, and make sure the right dose is given to the right person um, to minimise any risk of errors. But this is going to start to make it a bit more complicated as we roll into the next phase of, of the COVID-19 vaccine program. So this just gives a bit more data on the trials. As mentioned, that there was they did a two-to-one randomisation, obviously trying to maximise the, the protection in those that had the vaccine. So 1,500 initially and then 750 placebo. They've gone on to follow up another 1,000 individuals to, to monitor for safety. As I mentioned, they looked at the different doses and went with that 10 um, micrograms and showed that it was not inferior in terms of those immune responses and the safety profile was satisfactory with no... Um, cases of pericarditis or myocarditis in the vaccine or placebo arms, but again, two smaller numbers, even with 3,000 to really, to really pick that up. So it's already started. US is rolling out their program. They've got over 28 million five to 11 year olds in, in the US and last week they've started vaccinating. So within days of the FDA recommendation and ACIP, they had everything rolling out and we will obviously start to get some data pretty quickly over the next month or so. Again, that data will be really important as we start to look into the, the impact of, uh, of the vaccine in, in this age group. Just want to flag a couple of things around some of the you know, risk benefit in children. And again, uh, this paper that's come out from Petra Zinnerman and colleagues um, 
got a little bit of media towards the end of last week and it's just really flagging that we need to obviously think about the risk benefit if you've done the whole way through the program. As mentioned, um, less children less than 12 um, do tend to get less infection and the consequences may be different in terms of long COVID and other things, but we need to understand that data um, better. We've also got to think about the population protection. So that sort of risk you know, benefit is, is really important. We also need to know will these vaccines continue to um, impact on any variants of concern. Obviously Delta really changed what happened with, with COVID here in Australia. And we need to keep evaluating that risk um, benefit in terms of adverse effects and, and uh, effectiveness. So this table again, just taken from that paper in, in um, Archives Disease of Childhood, one of the BMJ journals, just looks on things for the four. So the four is the protection against um, COVID itself, potentially against obviously transmission, which we know the vaccines do work to help stop that transmission, both within the school and within the household. Impact on variants, while a little bit uncertain, it does seem to have protection against the variants from what we've seen to date in terms of the Delta and ancestral change, expected to give protection against this multi-system inflammatory syndrome and long COVID, reduced community transmission, and particularly, I think, really important to think about those school closures. We know closing down primary schools and rooms and all the impacts that have, has had a major impact on children and their families and education. So we do need to start to factor these things into our decision-making, and obviously that whole society moving at a place where in sort of pre-pandemic and activity and economic stability is, is crucial for children and their families. So I think these are the things we need to consider in the four. Obviously in the gain store, some of the um, things you need to think about in terms of the risk benefit is that the disease as mentioned is, is generally milder. There are the risk of uh, adverse effects and longer term outcomes, including the myocarditis. And they expect that to be lower in these five to 11 age groups as it is for, for classic myocarditis. It does seem to peak in that later older adolescent, uh, young adult age group, as I've mentioned. The efficacy is still a little bit unknown in terms of long COVID and PIMS-TS, but we would expect it would have an impact on those like it has for other, um, in the adults, it's definitely impacted on long COVID. The transmission still needs to be understood um, better. And the large proportion immune is really a UK issue. We've had still very low disease numbers in Australia, so I don't think that's a real rationale here in Australia. There have been limits in supply, but that is obviously improved here in Australia and, and internationally. We still need to think about um, the impact of the vaccine internationally and trying to line up with any routine vaccines, of which there's not that many in the five to 11 age group. So again, I think it's just really important to make sure we're having a robust discussion around these risk benefits as we, we start to think about this vaccine here in Australia in that 5 to 11 or primary school age group. So just before finishing on that, I think I have heard some breaking news in terms of um, the Pfizer vaccine and some of the research um, that's um, been undertaken and how they've you know, published and showed that data. So I think this was in the BMJ. Um, I think any of these sort of flags and concerns need to go through the appropriate processes in terms of evaluations through our regulators, including obviously the MHRA in the, the UK, the FDA in the United States and TGA in Australia. So we need to make sure the appropriate process has been followed for these clinical trials. These vaccines have been used internationally and widely. So we know that lots of the investigations to how well these vaccines are effective at a community level have been done not by the company, but by independent researchers. And we're very confident, as we can see from our numbers in our ICU, there's very few people in ICU who are fully vaccinated. There will be some, and as mentioned over time, there will be um, an increasing number as we get to these high rates of uh, vaccine coverage. But we do know that these vaccines do work. And, and as mentioned, I think um, we need to have those evaluations go through the appropriate uh, channels and parts. Pathways. But definitely the best vaccine to administer to your patients is the one that you, you have in your fridge and is available and appropriate for that time uh, for that individual. So on a lighter note, just wanted to go into a couple of delivery methods. And as mentioned, as we get to the pointy end of over 90% in different regions, we need to think about how can we deliver vaccines better? Can that be through going into people's communities 
having a bus that uh, can drive into those communities, deliver the vaccine, have some people knocking on the door. And I know in our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities, particularly in Western New South Wales, there's been people going door to door, administering the vaccine and answering the questions in a culturally you know, appropriate way and language that people can understand and their, you know, their natural um, or first language uh, is really important. So this is a couple of examples of some buses. The Shop Bro is, is from um, New Zealand and you can see that they've been going around really trying to get into those target groups. They've even had the gang leaders of uh, New Zealand come out and do some media in terms of they support the vaccine and, and giving it, you know, thinking about administration. So trying to get into those groups that are vulnerable and, and may have some hesitancy Jabba the Bus is the Australian version. I know that's been going around regional Victoria and other parts of Australia, taking the vaccine to the people and administering it in, in places that are suitable for them. And this is the one from the Red Centre Nat. So again, going a bit more the four-wheel drive. Lots of us haven't been able to leave our, our state or get into other fantastic parts of Australia, but clearly having these buses and, and getting them to places where it's needed, obviously been issues with the cold chain and, and getting into community has been difficult, but having these buses in appropriate places to deliver the vaccine, I think is, is fantastic. So we may have to do a bit of a vote on what you think your um, favourite um, bus might be. So moving now just a little bit off the COVID, which obviously you've been focusing on all the last presentations I've been um, doing for, for Health Ed, has been looking at other infections. So I think while we've been focused on COVID, we have been um, still delivering our standard national immunisation programs to young children, still been giving the adults their pneumococcal vaccine and the, um, the shingles or Zostavax vaccine for those that are 70 uh, years of age and older. That's actually been extended to make sure that we're protecting people from these vaccine preventable diseases. And there's a couple that I think are, are really crucial as we start to open up the borders, as I mentioned early on. So one of those is flu. This is actually from a February, you know, information saying we really should be giving lots of flu vaccine to try and minimise uh, the risk of transmission. Now, again, our borders have obviously been closed a lot over this year, but they're about to open up substantially. And we know that international travel in particular is going to open up without quarantine. So you come into Australia and you're quarantined for 14 days, you're not going to transmit COVID, which you've been tested and screened for, but you may well still have flu. But if you're in isolation for 14 days, you won't. Where once we have people in the community coming out of particularly the Northern Hemisphere, who's about to go into winter, there's an expectation we will have quite a lot of flu circulating and we need to obviously monitor that um, really closely. And obviously other important infections in travel are things like measles. So while majority of us will have had measles in our childhood vaccine or had some um, catch-up doses in our adolescent or young adult uh, years, you really want to make sure that people have had their measles vaccine. So it should be going through a bit of a checklist if people are coming into your practice, starting to open up some of your travel medicine discussions, make sure that they're protected from measles, typhoid, potentially infants from um, tuberculosis through BCG vaccines as required. So we've really got to start thinking about this travel medicine. It's not just um, COVID. So how can we minimise the risk of, of um, flu in, in late 2021, 20, uh, moving into, this, into next year? So I think, we do know that there has been decreased vaccine uptake. So especially in under fives, we do have an immunisation program, fully funded vaccine for children six months to five years of age. And I know that's been around half of what it had been of 2020. So around 25 to 30% of, of um, children of that age have been vaccinated, where it was up around 50 to 60% the previous year. So they're obviously a, a vulnerable group in terms of flu. And we really want to protect them if we can. A lot of these children may be going with their families back overseas. So it's important to protect the infants. But it's also important for the adult and carers to have their flu vaccine protected, particularly those that are working in healthcare workers. Again, really important that they get the flu vaccine if they haven't had it this year yet, including GP colleagues.
colleagues who are listening to this call. So go and get your flu vaccine if you haven't had it yet in 2021. Obviously maternal antenatal vaccination, very important both for the mother and the infant. So we need to make sure we have good uptake in our antenatal uh, care and, and shared care clinics and First Nations people as well. We need to optimise um, influenza vaccine uptake. So what can you do? So as I mentioned before, if you haven't had the 21 flu vaccine, should get out, go out and get it or recommend that your patients go out and get it, especially if they're about to travel overseas. I think it's really important. If we know people are coming back or we're making recommendations for, for colleagues or for people coming back to Australia who are currently in the Northern Hemisphere, they can obviously get the Northern Hemisphere vaccine. It does change and modify each year. So they should have that vaccine before they jump on the plane, not just be doing their COVID vaccine and, and testing as they need for their passport, but getting a flu vaccine at, at the same time is something we would recommend. So I'm going to finish there. I think, um, again, uh, really uh, thank um, everyone for listening. It's been obviously lots of things happening over the last um, six to eight months in terms of the vaccine program, acknowledging the, the SafeVic team, which has been helping support the safety, particularly in Victoria, as we've monitored for these serious adverse events, such as myocarditis, as I've mentioned, feeding that information into the TGA and getting our national picture. The Melbourne Vaccine Education Centre, which again has developed lots of resources and the link there if you have any, uh, want to look up our, any of our FAQs or other information. We also have our own vaccine um, update, which is a broader discussion around lots of issues around the vaccines, including some of the impact of mandates and other things I know are impacting on people in primary care to have some of those discussions or how you might manage that, as well as consent and other, other issues with a few workshops. So that's over the 18th, 19th, and would encourage people to um, join in if they, if they have the time or wanted to tap into some of those um, sessions. But uh, thanks again, everyone, for their time. Just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for the next webcasts, where you can always catch a high-quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high-quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free. You get CPD points and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthad.com.au. You can claim RACGP CPD points for listening to this podcast using the self-claim option. Log into your account on the RACGP website, go to the CPD section and click on self-claim.